0: You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret
1: Wise. Sherry Brooks. Tina Kamal.
0: Matthew Quick.
1: JT Ellison.
0: Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford. Corey. Dr. O. Robin Hong.
2: Ernest Klein. Jim Butcher.
0: Sherlene Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Scott Shepard on the show with me. He has an amazing new book. It's called The Last Commandment, and it's uh, the I believe this is the first book in a new series, isn't it, uh, Scott? Yeah, well, yeah, that's the idea. I just uh, I just turned in the second. And
1: uh, I'm starting with third. So there you go.
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, this is uh, a a new look at a Scotland Yard uh, detective story. If you if you love mysteries and thrillers the way I do, this is a must have for your summer uh, to be red pile. And uh, go grab it today. We're going to have links in the show notes of this episode. The Last Commandment available everywhere now by Scott Shepard. Welcome to the show, Scott.
1: Thank you
0: for having me. I'm excited to have you, Scott. Uh, we begin each show with the same question, and and this is going to be a bit of a loaded question for you because I, I know a, lo- a bit about your history, but what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?
1: Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a good question, that's not, and no one's asked me that yet, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Let me think that. Um you know, probably when I was a child, uh, um, uh, you know, I, it was probably reading Hardy Boy books, to tell you the truth, you know? It's like, uh, um, my paternal grandmother used to bring me, used to come from Kansas City, and uh, she would bring me a couple of Hardy Boy books, when I'm like, you know, six or seven, and uh, and I would just gobble them up, and what I really loved about that was you get to the end, and on the last page, it would say, Frank and Joe next, didn't know it, but in a month, they were going to be involved in the case of the old mill. And I go, oh, God, there's another one coming. And then, you know, so <laughs> anticipatory thing about having characters you sort of fell in love with that you wanted to see more of. Uh, that's the first thing that sort of sparked that. Um, so uh, and I couldn't wait for the next ones to come in and start from there. And then, you know, the other thing is, I guess, I mean, I grew up in a, um, in a showbiz family uh, who were all in the movies um they're all producers and so i watched a lot of movies a lot of tv uh and i just think you know i just love stories and i read a lot so i sort of said one day i don't want to be a producer even though i turned out to be one for a long time because i didn't know exactly what that was but if i could make up stories that'd be great
0: i've talked to lots of folks who have uh gotten inspiration from uh either you know a relative or maybe an uncle or something who you know was was the crazy uncle who you know would tell stories and and you know set a uh, a great example of it's, it's rare that i meet someone whose uh, whose whole familial experience was kind of wrapped up in storytelling that that had to be i mean it's it's your childhood it's the only childhood that you got to have right um but that, that has to be just magical in a sense.
1: Well, you know, I mean, one of the things, because of the connections that my family had of the things that my dad did, who was a producer and also an agent, um, a big agent in Hollywood for a long time in Rebrand Studios. So I, you know, in terms of like, I would give people context of where some of this weirdness came from writing stuff. Um, when I was a child, again, uh, like Roald Dahl used to tell me bedtime stories. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and I, at the time, um, you know, when I'm five or six years, you know, I just knew Uncle Roald, uh, my dad happened to represent him and his wife, Pat Neal, who was a great actress. Um, and so Uncle Roald, you know, come up and, you know, all I knew, he, he was the guy who wrote, as far as I knew, was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach. I didn't realize until I was a little older that. You know, he was one of the foremost great horror storytellers, you know, short story writers. Um, but he would tell me, like, he'd sit in my room and tell me a story like, once upon a time, uh, he says there was a little boy named Scott who swallowed an octopus. And then the octopus laid eggs in his stomach. And then he would go, Good night, and he'd walk out of the room. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I would sit there and go like, whoa, uh, you know. And I think I was equally, uh, as i told people over the years, equally horrified by what might be going on inside my stomach but at the same time totally intrigued by the mystery of it and the wonder of it all and so that kind of led to a love of mystery thriller detective you know, fantasy and horror fiction
0: so if your father would have been a carpenter um there's a a good chance that at some point in your childhood you would have you know gone to work with your dad either on a construction site or in his uh, you know woodworking shop or or whatever and you know there would probably be menial tasks that you would be given which you know looking back would would you had would have realized that he was passing on some of the secrets of the trade to you and and uh, not always in in formal lesson um format but in practical application Looking back and growing up in this storytelling family, were there ever um, moments where you knew that the the craft was being handed down to you, or um, was this just you know the atmosphere that you just you know were absorbing life through?
1: I, I think it was the atmosphere more than anything else. I mean, truthfully, I really didn't understand what my dad did tell us in my teens. Um, you know, I mean uh and my grandfather and great-grandfather going all the way back i mean i really wasn't aware of what that was i just knew they were involved in the movie business and you know they knew a bunch of famous people um but um you know uh i, I don't know i think part of it like the twilight zone was a huge thing for me as a little kid growing up i mean you know i was just kind of aware of it, it was coming off the air but i've seen all of the 160 uh, all 165 episodes i used to you know, that to me was the first thing I think I fell in love with, like storytelling and this kind of of storytelling, because it's genre storytelling, but all those stories are so wonderful that they're, you know, about something else, and they just have this kind of genre thing to kind of, you know, get a hold of you. But at the end of that, what I always took away from those stories was the heart and the lesson and the moral and and all that stuff. Um, So yeah, you know, and then then when I decided to start writing, and I kind of started writing, I was always kind of doing a little bit of it in high school but and coming out of college you know my lessons with my father who was to would probably admit was a frustrated writer in himself that he never wrote he produced a lot of movies and ran studios and he kind of did very literate really kind of cool movies as he was responsible for he like he produced breakfast at tiffany's when he was 30 years old and ran studios that did movies like when he ran mgm he made movies like fame and um uh, the champ and shoot the moon and i think So he was always kind of hard on me in terms of the sense that if you're going to do it, you got to do it well. And I remember when I first handed him something right out of college, I'd written a a musical uh, with a jingles writer from Tucson, Arizona, uh, where I wrote the book and he wrote the lyrics. It was a murder mystery. There you are, because I've always been reading murder mysteries and thrillers, a murder mystery musical that we originally called. A little knife music but then we changed it to uh alibi of broadway and it was like kind of like the maltese falcon meets my fair lady really kind of fun and i handed my father and he i I, you know you see you wait until the next day and and he goes literally says well at least you finished something (laughs) and i'm going oh "Oh." i go okay (laughs) and as being a fairly competitive person and wanting to please my father so i went off with the jingles We rewrote it and this time i submitted it through a friend of a friend who got it to a producer and the next thing i knew it was optioned by a broadway producer in new york who um had lo- uh, one more time and just just in the amazing certain color dream coat on and peter allen they flew me to new york because they wanted me to replace my uh, to kick off my jingles right and have peter allen do the music which i wouldn't do because i wouldn't you know um screw over my my good friend but it was a great experience but then i come back and i give my dad the um the new play, not having said anything about it. And I go, and the next day I said, what do you think? And he goes, well, it's better. I go, well, good. Cause I sold it to a Broadway producer. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, that was some vindication, but you know, it's funny. He would like tell me what, you know, about things. And I think it was from his experience. And I think he just was pushing me cause he was a sort of a self-made guy. Uh, he would tell me things like, what could you write about that um, would be interesting to millions of people? And I'm sitting there going like, well, that's not a very nice way of putting things, but I kind of realized that he was right, you know, in the sense that, like the book, like The Last Commandment, I mean, you know, is at its heart, what it's really about is these three people, you know, it's really about, you know, uh, the Scotland Yard detective, the detective who works for and is a stranger, and, you know, the uh, Scotland Yard daughter, but it's surrounded by this maniacal, you know, serial killer that's killing according to the Ten Commandments, and I keep going, I could literally draw on almost everything that goes through the three of those people from things in my life and emotions and stuff that they go through. But I can also say at the same time, I don't think I know anybody who's a, you know, a maniac killing people according to the Ten Commandments. But, you know, what it allowed it to do, it, it you know, it gives you a foundation to kind of tell the stories you want to sort of tell. So in that way, I think my father was right. He said, you know the way you you know if you want to write stuff that's interesting about yourself you're going to to put it on a platform where um people it becomes accessible to people and then it'll sneak up on you
0: scott you have been involved in some of the most beloved television series um as someone who grew up in the 70s and 80s looking back you were involved with um the equalizer miami vice the outer limits haven quantum leap some of the best TV of the '80s and '90s um, that that I can recall, um, and and I think that experience that you had there um, ties into what you're doing now, and I want to talk about that in just a minute. Um, but how did you how did you land at TV and and, and working on? Uh, I, I guess that what I'm really interested in is the the ongoing storytelling of a like a drama series like Miami Vice or, or uh, Quantum Leap, where You have this meta story that's going on, and then you have to figure out what to tell on a week-by-week basis that is a self-contained story, but then ultimately moves the greater narrative, you know, ever forward. Um, How did you land there?
1: Well, I think it was sort of a natural progression in the sense that, um, I mean, I started collecting, you know, like I said, uh, started reading the Way books that led to me reading like the Perry Mason books when I was like nine or ten, the Earl Stanley Gardner books and I started reading. Then I discovered Ross McDonald, you know, when I was in high school and that was the end of it. I was going, okay, I'm just hooked on these kind of books and thrillers. I now have, much of my wife's chagrin, like 10,000 first editions of Mystery and Thriller Writers. A lot of them have now become friends, which is cool. But so, you know, by being a lover of those kind of books, you know, and, you know, you could like Agatha Christie, right? I mean, you know, Hercule Perot, 30 books, Miss Marple, 15 books. That idea of seeing self-contained stories but you know you get to watch that character progress some more than others in the course of books was something I loved so as you sort of built you know series television the shows you talk about particularly back in those days as opposed to we can get to where we're doing with the binge watching now which is great also is you're kind of you know you're sort of primed to know how to do that you know it's um so that's what kind of that's what kind of started me you know and then the first show I did was a show called Matt Houston It was on, uh, it was an Aaron Spelling show in the early eighties with about a detective show. And it was was kind of a meat and potato show, but it was kind of fun in the sense that it allowed us to do exactly what you're saying. Come up with a story each week. If there was a little bit of an Uber art, not that there was much one with that show, we were able to do it. Then I went and did the equalizer for most of its run. And, you know, that was a fabulous experience. And, you know, got to live in New York for three years. Um, It's where my love of New York comes from. It's in the book. I could even argue the fact. That I'm not even arguing, I can just sort of say some of that character, or certainly the actor, Edward Woodward, um, is, was always been, was somebody I was able to write for. Grant is sort of a version of that, you know, that original character, a sense of humor, the way even my head, where he was in life. I think that's where that came from, you know, because I've been because work- I've had this idea for this, you know, this idea for this book, originally a movie, which I never did anything with since back then. And I'm sure that's kind of where it started.
0: The Last Commandment is your third book that you published, is that right?
1: Yeah, it's the yeah, the third book, first mystery
0: thriller, basically. Yeah. So you started with Descending Sun, and then The Seventh Day, and now we we land at The Last Commandment. What was it that, uh, you know, having had such an illustrious career, um, you know, writing for stage and uh, and then for television and show running and and all of that, what brought you around to writing prose? Um, well, obviously, you know, I think I always, you know, wanted to, you know, write
1: detective novels and I didn't get way late. It just became the way to make a, you know, because I was sort of surrounded by people in the business and we got, you know, uh, I had a partner that I was working with back then, um, we did Matt Houston with, and, you know, then we kind of split up because he went off to go do movies and we stayed friends all the years and we're actually doing TV again, 35 years later, you know, uh, adapting murder mysteries, um, you know, uh, but, I always kind of, I, you know, I never stopped reading those things, and, and and you know, what television kind of perfected my sense of structure. Structure is pretty easy to me. Like I've structured this book, every book with no outline is just coming off my head. I kind of know how to do that, um, and so that helped. And then we started working with, you know, I started having the privilege of working with a bunch of novelists and adapting their shows, starting with, you know, The Dead Zone, Stephen King. We did Haven, which we ran seven years based on a novel of his called The Colorado Kid. And then I started and then I uh, got introduced, uh, oh, God, like 12, 15 years ago to Harlan Coben. Uh, who had an idea and I went to New Jersey and saw him and it helped that we were both huge Bruce Springsteen fans. So we talked about that at his house for an hour and he had this idea and we sold the idea as a TV series and wrote a script together that didn't get made, but it was a pretty cool idea, you know. I mean, I keep telling Harlan she turned into one of his books. Um, It was one of those standalone kind of tell-no-one type thrillers. But when we actually wrote the outline, or I wrote the outline after bouncing it off of him, you know, I would normally write an outline like a page or two in my head, but I wrote a 45-page prose outline because I kind of wrote it in Harlan's style because I wanted to say, okay, here's a TV series. You're buying Harlan Coben, basically. Here's the version of it. Everybody thought Harlan had written it, so that was encouraging. And then that just over the next few years kind of progressed to where I just started writing more prose. I'd write long outlines and there was this frustrated, you know, I think novelist in me and television just got more and more. I mean, it's always been fine. It's just a little crazy and, you know, just harder to get things done. Um, And then I became friends with and I'm still friends with uh, Karen Slaughter who we adapted her things, uh, you know, her Grant County books. And then then she always said, hey, if you write a novel, I would, you know, show it to my, you know, my agent, Victoria Sanders, you know, because I'd become friendly with her and Victoria said the same thing. And then what had happened was two things happened at the same time. One was, um, that, um, a, a friend of mine, um, I I learned suddenly, we were in Hawaii when I found out on a vacation, and a friend of mine, it turned out that he passed away, they dedicated a show to him on Modern Family. I hadn't been in touch with him for like nine months, and I was sort of devastated because I knew he called me like nine months earlier, and I I hadn't gotten around to talking to him. And like the next day, I said, you know what, it's sort of like, you never know what's going to happen, you know, sit down and start writing a book. And then I had this script that I had written for Fox like 10 years before called uh, Dark Sands, uh, that you know, it was back to that I had nothing ever happened with. And it, it's the first third of, of my, first. it became the first third of my first book, Descending Sun. So I got, you know, it was like a 500 page book. I had 140 pages from my 60 page script that translated pretty well. And then I had to figure out like what the other two thirds of the book was and that kind of moved forward from there. And then once I did that, I just started loving it. And and then um, and the the second book was also has an interesting long story that you know the seventh day that came out of that. But I always kind of knew I'd end up wanting to write thrillers and mystery novels. And like I said, I had this idea for a long time.
0: Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. Pubsite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. Pubsite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. Pubsite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, Pubsite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. Pubsite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning professional looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. pub-site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device, there's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story, to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and 3 acts. Each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write, we take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code Hank10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. Plotpins.com. Scott, I've I've talked to lots of authors who have uh, either been actors before or uh, screenwriters or directors uh, somewhere involved in the process and, and they, they talk about novel writing in a way that, um, that that there's a freedom in it because you are the master of the entire domain. Um, Mm -hmm. at some point when you're writing for screen or, or, uh, there's, uh, there's the assumption uh, that this will be a collaborative process on on some level, uh, you know, at some point you're going to finish this script and you're going to hand it to a director and then they're going to interpret that and then they're going to hire actors who then continue to interpret that and then, you know, hopefully the director is steering, you know, the vision, but it it kind of goes out of your hands. Um, it is was. Was that experience for you at writing prose? Did, did you feel that freedom that that people talk about?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was a big part of it. I mean, you know, um, you know, television. Uh, I've always said it ad nauseum for years. Is that I always say the first thing I would tell people in television is, is not a radio show. Uh, <laughs> I was like, you know, as long as your eyes and ears can see it, you don't need to write it. Um, uh, as much or describe it. And then when I started writing novels, I went like, whoa, wait a sec, it is a radio show. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which was great because I always loved writing my narrative and kind of sort of wasted, I think, in scripts where it's like, I was kind of moving the camera around all the time and sort of telling you exactly what I wanted to see. So that was one thing. You're very, you know, you're exactly right in a sense, of the collaborative nature of television. I mean, I teach also, I've been teaching for seven years a class in Austin at UT. And what I always tell these TV students, I'm saying, look, television is a collaborative process. Your script number five in a series is only as good as number four, number six, you gotta work with other people. William Goldman, you know, one of the great screenwriters in his book, I think, Adventure in the Screen Trade, he said, you know, his first, the first line of that, which is true about Hollywood, his first line in that book is always, nobody knows anything, which is true. Uh, And then the second thing I always remember from that book was he would say, once you take a script out of the typewriter, it is no longer yours. This is a collaboration, you're along for the ride. You know, that's what you need to go do. And it, and that's great. You know, the problem is you have to really plot it out. I've actually had a friend of mine who's, you know, I mean, we're, uh, uh, me and my old partner, Dan Pine, are about to adapt the series of mystery novels, you know, um, but, uh, and a friend of mine has a pilot that he sold to Fox and he literally was kind of stuck and he came over. We went back for breakfast yesterday and sat for four hours where he wanted to bounce off me to help him with the plot of his pilot. And, It's one of those things I hadn't, you know, I've done it on my own thing, you know, but to work with somebody else the last couple of years, I haven't done a lot of that. And it's just I kind of realized, oh, my God, you know, you have to figure every freaking thing out. You know, I mean, because you can't have the luxury of like figuring it out as you go along or having it come to you because you have too many people, everything from fellow writers to producers to studios to networks to film crews to actors (laughs) needing to know, have a roadmap as to where it's going, right? So you can't just sort of like the day, you know, of this, you know, you're going to shoot. You just can't suddenly appear with something. Whereas like the great thing about novels is I found out that because I have a good sense of where I'm going structure wise, I can literally kind of not know exactly where I'm going the next day. And I have the luxury of discovering that. And that's been so freeing
0: and so wonderful. The uh well, Scott, um, I'm fascinated by the beginnings of things that that moment of inspiration um, just truly fascinates me uh, because in in one moment and this is the way I describe it to people a lot of times in one moment the last commandment does not exist in any form or fashion it just doesn't exist and then either uh, a character walks onto the stage of your mind And then you you know you're like well what is this character up to and then you start seeing his story and uh or maybe you watch a a a news program on tv and you start playing the what if game in your mind and then you know characters populate that what if story and then in in one in one instant um the last commandment exists in in some shape and then it's your job as the writer to excavate that story and, and, you know, to pull it out of the ground and figure out what it is. Um, What is that first moment? What, what was that first moment of inspiration for you at The Last Commandment?
1: Yeah, it's funny because uh, <laughs> I, I honestly can't remember. I, you know, I mean, because it's, it's come up a few times over the last few weeks. And because I've had the idea for so long, I mean, it's like literally been in my head, you know, Hank, for like, 30 years i you know and and what happened is like i think it was yeah around the time i was doing the equalizer um you know i was thinking oh we'll write a movie and i really ne- never have written movies i've just worked on 25 television shows and now the novels um which is plenty uh but i had this idea and i think you know part of it was was not it was kind of around lethal weapon and and i sort of had this idea of, well what's a kind of cuz i thought it was a film right i thought like what about as a i must have landed somehow about something about scott liar maybe he was working with edward was, you know, on the equalizer. What about a Scotland Yard cop? Who would be the antithesis to put him against? And way back then, you know, it was like, okay, you know, and I kind of in my head, was like at the time, hey Sean Connery could be him at 60 years old at the time in the movie. And Frankel could be Robert De Niro in his 30s. I mean, that's how long back it was. And 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 some young British actress could play, um, you know, Rachel. Well, anyway, um, it's just so sad. I never got around to it. I had never been to, L- well, I came up with these two ideas, of these two cops, sort of oil and water, London cop, fish out of water, New York cop, fish out of water, start, is, put in, start in London, go to New York, then go to, L- I mean, that's sort of what sort of came up. And then it just sat. I had never been to London at that time. I'd spent a lot of time in New York. One of the nice benefits of waiting 30 years, and I had so, too much in my head because I have lots of ideas. They just sit in my head like like a, on a runway and I'm the air traffic controller who allows them to come up. Um, by the time I got around to starting this book a few years ago, was I spent a lot of time in London. I mean, I always loved the idea of it as a writer, so it becomes sort of a tale of two cities, you know. Uh, also, they're like the fourth and fifth characters in the book, London and New York, and and so that was how that's where the first idea sort of came from. And then I guess at some point I had read um, was, this was before Seven and it was before the Da Vinci Code. Um, I, I there was a you know, the other book that really influenced me, there's a book by Lauren Sanders. You remember Lauren Sanders? Um, yeah. yeah, and The First Deadly Sin, which is like one of the first great serial killer books. And uh, some guys killing according to this, the seven deadly sins. So I kind of, you know, sort of said, okay, how do you take that and make it your own? And then the Ten Commandments or something like that. Maybe I'd seen the movie on TV. That's what it started. And then I always had in my head for the last 30 years, all I had in this, you know, idea, and it never really changed. I knew how it opened. With the killing at the start i knew that it was going to get you to, to new york at the end of what would be the opening of a movie or a book and i knew to start in new york end up in london and i knew the one thing i did know i knew who did it and i knew where it would end the rest of it i had no idea until i sat down and started to write the book but the biggest thing and to go back to your thing about the freedom and discovering what really changed and was really eye-opening for me is by the time I sat and, you know, wrote this manuscript a couple of years ago, there's a scene really early on um, when Grant, it's like the first night Grant and uh, Frankel, you know, so you know, uh, Frank, uh, Grant being the Scotland Yard cop and then this uh, meets this new, young New York cop, they go to compare notes and they go to a little coffee shop called the Astro Diner which happened to be on the corner of 55th and 6th, which is where we used to live upstairs when I was doing the equalizer, my wife and I, and we would order up chocolate milkshakes in the middle of the night. So that's where Frankel's love of chocolate milkshakes comes. So everything has like some kind of root somewhere. And there's and, and, and there's this thing where the Scotland Yard Cop notices that the young cop has a wedding ring on his finger. And I was just writing that. I mean, I didn't, you know, and, I, and he sort of said, oh, you're married. And then he tells, and, and suddenly I just almost just came out of nowhere. I have Frank will tell this little story about how his ex-wife, you know, his wife left, you know, uh, left him for another man for the super in their building and they went off to Hawaii. And, uh, but he just couldn't bring himself to take the ring off and talk about psychologically why he just thought, you know, just wasn't ready to do it, blah, blah, blah. And he says something about, well, maybe I'm just writing, waiting for the right person to come along to do that. And it sort of framed where I wanted to go with the book. And it framed him as a much kinder, gentler, troubled guy. And one of the nice things that I, that people have reacted to the book is, you know, that people sort of say there is a begrudging, maybe begrudging, there's just respect between the two men. It's not oil and water, you know, which is the way I originally conceived it. It becomes a kind of not even begrudging partnership. It's just they go about things differently and they have a lot of mutual interests at the same time. And that not only informed that book. informed the book after and how I could write about these characters for a long time. So that it just kind of evolved, you know, which is great.
0: When you uh, talk a a little bit, if you would, about um, reader expectations. Um, When you think of a Scotland Yard novel, there are certain things that you expect. It's going to be kind of a slow burn. Um, uh, It's going to be a deep psychological dive, you know, because there have been writers before who have written in that way and kind of defined a genre if you will um you take a lot of those things and turn them on their head in the last commandment in in a in a brilliant way it's it's not off-putting at all but when you know you, you can you come into something with an expectation um where does that come from that uh, that idea of uh subverting uh reader expectation but not in a malicious way in a in a fun way Let's see where we can take this genre next kind of way.
1: Um, well, I want it to be fun. I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, I, you know, even though they're, the murders are kind of brutal, they're kind of done with a wink. And I kind of want to make sure that people could, you know, you know not put it down because, oh, it's too gory and it's glorifying that stuff. And it's really like an engine. I mean, what, what became to me, honestly, was. The book's all about, to me, was interesting, was, you know, was the journey of these three characters, you know, and particularly with Grant at the at the center and his relationship with his daughter. Um, And that was really important. I'm going, how do I get to that? I mean, and I'm not going to spoil any of the book or whatever, but, you know, there's a conversation towards the end of the book, you know, between right at the end of the book. That's what the whole book's about. You know, I mean, everything else is just kind of fun between between father and daughter. That's what was important to me, you know, Um, and. Um, I've always said, like, everything I kind of write, maybe it's part of the strange relationship, you know, that I have with my father, um, and being, like I mentioned, like a big Bruce Springsteen fan, um, my favorite Springsteen line, and I always write to it, doesn't it, is, we're born into this life paying for the sins of someone else's past, from Adam raised to Cain, and that. You know, is at the heart of all these mysteries and thrillers, right? That we all read, you know, noir American fiction, particularly, but also some of the great Nordic fiction now and the British fiction, and this, all the this stuff we read. So, you know, to me, I, I, those are the stories, Those and that mystery is in that plays out in here in everything I've ever done and in the books going forward. So that's one thing. I also say that part of me wants you to feel really bad about feeling good about something and really good about <laughs> bad about something. And it's like, you know, I've just, some people have read. I've got a bunch of people, you know, read the first book, have read the new book, um, the second book um, will come out next summer called Till Death. And to a person, they all actually and they all love the first one. They like the second one even better. And I'm going, oh, great, you know, it's because they like the characters. And if somebody they'll say on a page, suddenly you'll hit something that's heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. And, and that's the way I've always written. And that's all I really care about is heart and how you, but, but you get to it, like you say, by turning its head on it. And then the last thing I always sort of say is, you know, I really do believe that good things come to those who wait. And, and so I always think it's like writing a contrast, right? You know, is my wife, when she read the first book and the second book, she says, these three characters are like they're so nice. They're kind of they're good, you know. She says like I says there's something wrong. She says no. It's just you read all these books about all these horrible people these bar things. I said yeah. I said but you know what? I said I want you to root for these people. Look what's going on around them. You know I mean it's like you know they're in this dark crazy world with a malicious serial killer. So to me it it allows me to kind of play both things, and that's kind of what you know is really interesting to me. And I think I guess I learned that from the get go. I you know it's. It, it, you know, and I would say Rod Sterling is one of the first people who does that. You know, he puts some weird genre thing. But what I, what I always took about it from is, you know, like Beauty Lies in the Eye of the Beholder. You know, the the woman with the, you know, remember that Twilight Zone episode with the woman with the face that they're going to has the surgery? And they keep saying you're going to be beautiful or not beautiful. And she turns out she's really, you know, to us, she looks really beautiful. And to everybody else, they all look like pigs. And, and it's kind of like you're sitting there going like it's all, you know, it all comes from perspective. And that's what I took away from that besides the shock of it. Because the shock, the surprise of you know, anything, it's only going to get you once, right? Then you kind of go and say, How do they do that? And you go back and read things because it's about characters. So it just keeps coming back to that. And that was one of the nice things about TV because of continuing characters. You write about characters all the time. And you, you know, you want to bring them back into people's living room every week.
0: I love hearing um that you're inspired by music um, I, I am a, like that as well I can hear a song in a complete book just unfolds uh, you know in in my mind and and it a lot of times it has absolutely nothing to do with the song maybe it's a line in the song that triggers something or it's just an emotive experience um, I have other friends who who have to write in complete silence and can't be can't have any outside influence whatsoever and i find that crazy um (laughs) you know and and you know they in turn think i'm crazy so um what about being inspired by other things and um I, i i love that that music does that for you
1: yeah music's a big thing i mean i same i'm obviously the same as you i write with music um, blaring, you know, I make these playlists and, and a lot of and it's funny, I listen to a lot of oldies because, you know, like somebody said, the music you listen to when you're in your teens is the music you listen to or versions of it the rest of your life. Right. And so that for me was the Beatles, you know, as a kid, Springsteen and then being from California. Um singer-songwriters, you know, I mean, you know, Crossroads and Nash, Jack Brown, Jolie Mitchell, Neil Young, you know, all those, you know, the Eagles, you know, all that stuff. And yeah. so to me, I've always had that on. And the thing I always know writing-wise is I'll be writing for a few hours, and then I kind of go like, I missed those six songs. Did I, I, I skip them? And I realize you're just so into what you're writing that it's just feeding in. I, you know, and I've always been able to write with music on when I'm rewriting, especially, because I think it just pushes you and it inspires you, just in terms of just getting, you know, your creative juices going. I can't read with music on because and I think that's I think it's pretty simple. It's like, I mean what I take it down to is like, you know, you're insular thinking and you're taking something in, right? is when you're reading it's almost like and and you're listening to music one thing's going in one's going out they're working against each other so um that's why you know to me music's great and then just being inspired um like and starting with Springsteen. i mean springsteen's right he's in this book right you know um and um the first book is literally um descending sun comes from because of the night the springsteen song take me now as the sun descends um and uh, so, yeah, I just I, I love it. I mean, it's like and and I hear a lyric and I'll think about something. A lot of it is also all the TV shows I've done because I spent a lot of time editing with working with the editors. And I'm always like sometimes writing with a song in my head that you play in the background to it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very important you know, for, you know, I, my, my music taste is pretty much like I say, it's sort of 60s, 70s. And, you know, those guys are still playing. Luckily, I have a 60 year old character at the center of it so he can like that music. Um, And and then I just made my 35 year old cop he's from New Jersey. So he can like Springsteen, even though he's only 35. So, you know, it allows me to kind of get in what I want to get,
0: you know. Well, there's lots of oldie stations now, so you can be influenced by uh, by Springsteen at any age now. Um, When when we meet Metropolitan Police Commander Austin Grant uh, in the last commandment, he is uh, basically on his last case. Uh, which is a, a great place to introduce a character. <laughs> he said, laughing um, that, uh, you know, uh, one, we have this wisdom character uh, on one hand. He's also jaded by a lot of things, um, but he has all of this experience that he's bringing with him. And and we all know that the other side of experience that you bring with you is baggage that you bring with you. Um, what What was it like to introduce a character at the end of his career to a new series
1: um you know i was just having this conversation with my friend yesterday working on his pilot you know you know and i think it goes with any book and, and pilots especially for tv series when you're starting something out it's why now right you know why are you starting here why didn't you start 10 days ago why didn't you start 10 years ago and so i said okay what's the spot where i could put the most pressure on him and load him up and i had this idea that you know i wanted him and because I am this incurable, sappy romantic, you know, that I love the idea about here's a guy who lost the love of his life and life hasn't been the same. So he's just going to go off and disappear and, and leave. And then suddenly this case comes in and then it also has to come and it comes back to reflect on him and his life and his family and and everything. So it was a, it was a great crucible to put him in. And, you know, and then the idea was uh, I also it gave, it gave a ticking clock on it because I just, you know, that that really spoiling anything is if you're going to start with he's got three weeks left you know and it's over christmas and new year's and there's a case and there's this killer going out there it's probably going to go right down to the end of the year so i kind of knew kind of where it gave me a a a goal of someplace to go and then you know one of the things you know it's interesting the scotland yard of it all i mean auto penciler you know the uh my publisher who publishes mysterious press and knows the mysterious bookshop and you know knows more about mystery fiction than anybody um has you know, been on the show
0: before yeah, it's
1: great you know, and, and we know each, and, you know that's a whole long story about how i got back uh, to do this with him and it's been great but otto when he wanted to put the subtitle on the book you know i said well you know i said that's okay but i said and you know he talked about yeah scotland yard he was talking about adam daglish you know the pd james and I said, did really wasn't. Well. Yeah. I said, but you know what? I mean, I'm going to write more of these and I'll tell you this. And he's like, you're not going to work at Scotland Yard anymore. So, you, And you're not going to call the second one the uh, an Austin Grant formerly of Scotland <laughs> novel to go around the back right <laughs> of, of the book. But we'll deal with that when we do. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just it was a really great place to, to put him in. And um, that's why I started there with him. And it's also a character I hadn't seen a lot of too. It's like, you know, it wasn't just your typical hard bit private eye who's been, you know, working twenty. The ones I love reading, you know, you have to bring something a little bit different.
0: So where do you take this character from here? Do do you um, do you continue to give him new uh, challenges, new stories to tell? Is he going to reflect back on his, uh, you know, lengthy career? How do you when you when you take a character like this that that you, you know, put these restraints on yourself from the beginning so that t- to see where the story comes from. Right. Um, how do you start thinking about the future of that character? Um,
1: well, I always kind of knew. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, so the second book it takes place six months after the fact, and what's interesting with him is he's bored out of his mind, you know, because, like, he can only do so many crossword puzzles, read books, he's lonely. You know, um he's you know, uh, and so then he gets involved in another personal situation in the second book um, uh, that immediately grabs him. And so the second story and involves the three of them, um, is very personal again. Um, and by the end of that, people forget this two years from now, and anyway, we when I get to the third one <laughs> is that he it sort of reinvigors his um, his, you know, Hunt, you know, joy of the hunt and the puzzle, and so kind of, so he's going forward like the third book on. He opens up like a little sort of private inquiries, as he would sort of say it, uh, um, office, and starts you know, kind of like the equalizer a little bit, sort of starts to take on cases. And what it does, it gives me these three franchises going forward. You know, Rachel being an investigative reporter, Frankel a New York City cop, and then this former Scotland Yard who's almost kind of like a private investigator to do stories. But the whole idea for me with this show, with the show, it might be a television show at some point, but with the, with the 40 slip there, but the book, but the books to me are always the idea is to find some event in one, two or all three of these characters, like some seminal event that I can then wrap a really cool mystery around, but it's really to kind of furtherly progress, you know, Grant as he moves forward in his old, you know, in his re- retirement, but kind of his new life. And then wherever this takes without many spoilers, where Rachel and Frank will go.
0: Well, I can't wait to see what you do with Austin Grant in the future. Uh, I am all in on this new series, and I know uh, a lot of other people will be too. Uh, I'm going to clear a shelf uh, just for Austin Grant. Um, Right. (laughs) the, The Last Commandment is out everywhere now. You can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover. Uh, if if you want to uh, click on the Amazon links in the show notes, uh, also in audiobook format. Um, have you listened to the audiobook yet, Scott? No, I mean I've, I, I, I've listened to uh, Sean,
1: who who, uh, um, who reads it, who's great, British, and. Uh, he does a really good job of it. i just not a big audiobook. I mean, I'm, I'm old school. I need to have the thing in my hand. Which is where you know, the books are like chasing me out the door here at my house. But yeah, you know, but it's great. I mean, I know people love it. And you know, here in LA, luckily, I don't. You know, I just the pandemic. I walk around the block and play golf and write at my computer. I don't. I don't have that commute where an audiobook would be great. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, we'll put links to the audiobook as well. Um, it's you know. Lots of audiobook lovers these days, and uh, I know it's going to be fantastic. Um, Scott, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online?
1: Um, They can find – they can go to my website, which is Scott S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. It's scottshepardauthor.com, and if you go there, you can find links to – um, you know, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and Facebook, but that's the place to go, you know? And, you know, we, we, you know, we'll put this interview there for people. We'll find it there and other things I've talked about and, you know, we're getting you know, putting reviews and kind of, we're trying to do some fun things and, you know, some articles I'm going to write. We'll probably at some point access some of the television stuff, but yeah,
0: that's kind of where we're at. Love it. I love the book, The Last Commandment. Um, It's one of my favorite books I've read this year. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy. Scott, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Frank. It was a joy talking to you.
2: Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade Forgotten Ruin, Book Two by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you. By Christopher Ryan Grant Chapter 1 The Army of the Dead Walked Straight into Our Ambush East of Fortress Hawthorne That's what the FOB is called now Fortress Hawthorne Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne As was originally intended When the 50 detachments of Various Special Operations Groups Came forward through time From Area 51 a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous PFC Kennedy. But the rangers just call it the fob. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the army of the dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymores' sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us. And an early one at that but there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors, carrying spear and shield. Other, darker creatures, barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, The brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing! whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished. Stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some. Rotting boots. Helms with broken horns. Missing teeth. Tattered leather kilts. Beads and charms dangling from bone wrists. Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt, or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence, malignantly so walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began, as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none.
0: Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no further than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.